You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast series that covers a broad spectrum of national and international legal issues. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Lucy McCann. I am Lucy McCann from One Crown Office Row, and I am delighted to have here with me Philip Havers KC to talk about appellate advocacy. Philip, welcome. Thank you. Philip really warrants little introduction. Philip is a former head of chambers here at One Crown Office Row and has practised as a barrister for over 40 years. Philip is an expert in medical and public law and listeners will no doubt be familiar with the many landmark cases he's acted in, including more recently Meadows and Kahn, Sienna and Poole and Darnley and Croydon. I can't think of many people better placed to talk to our listeners about advocacy in appellate courts today. So, Philip, before we get stuck into talking about specific aspects of appellate advocacy, I'm curious to hear what you think your most memorable case has been, either in the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court. Well, pr- probably Spycatcher, which involved a former member of MI5 who published a book revealing lots of secret information about his time as a member of MI5. The Attorney General applied to injunct the publication of the book. It was the story of the day, and the impression was, and the the view given was that the information in the book could be very, very damaging to national security. And it's memorable for two reasons. First, because the the case came on very quickly. The the hearing before the first instance judge, Nick Brown-Wilkinson, who was the vice-chancellor, took place on a Monday and a Tuesday. He gave judgment on the Wednesday. And when we left court, we went straight down the corridor from his court to the Court of Appeal, court number three, where the Court of Appeal was already waiting for us. And John Mummery, who was leading me, literally had to open the appeal without any advance preparation at all, and only having just been handed the judgment. The hearing in the Court of Appeal lasted the rest of Wednesday, and Thursday, and they gave judgment on the Friday, uh, we lost uh, both at first instance and then the Court of Appeal. But we appealed, and the appeal in the House of Lords, as it then was, began the following Monday morning. So that shows you how quickly the, the justice system can work if it really has to, which it, which it did then. But the other reason why it's very memorable is because when... John Mummery stood up to open the appeal in the House of Lords on the Monday morning. He was subjected to just under an hour's worth of really a barrage of questions from all five of the members of the appellate committee of the House of Lords. One after the other, they, as it were, attacked him, but they asked him difficult question after difficult question. And he simply stood there. Because they were so keen, each of them, to ask questions, he he didn't have a chance to answer any of them before the next one weighed in with the next question. And he stood there, looking polite, waiting until they finished. And eventually, as I say, after nearly an hour, the questions stopped. He paused, he drew a deep breath, and he said, May it please your lordships, I represent the appellant on this appeal. And he began the appeal. So... I'm, I'm jumping ahead to a little further in I, what I think you're going to ask me, but if you ever find yourself in an appellate court, 
being questioned in that way. Just, just wait until the questions have died down and then take a deep breath and then do your best either to answer them or, in his case, to start from the beginning. I first want to turn to written advocacy. What do you think judges in the Court of Appeal want to see in skeleton arguments? Concision. What they want is are, are short and to the point skeleton arguments which summarise the facts as concisely as possible and then set out the arguments because these are appellate hearings. So you, you start with a judgment from the court below and what the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court want are the arguments why you say the judge below or the judges below were wrong or right set out in a concise and succinct way. And that's usually the most effective means of advocacy anyway, in any court, but particularly in the appellate courts. And appellate judges usually get irritated if the skeleton arguments are too long, and some of them are, and some of them repeat themselves, which is an even worse sin. So skeleton arguments are, of course, used in the Court of Appeal, but what are printed cases or written cases for the Supreme Court, and how do they differ from skeleton arguments? In the Supreme Court, the procedure is slightly different because the parties were already required to agree a statement of facts and issues. So the facts will already have been set out in a separate document. So the printed case starts off with the facts already taken as read. In other respects, they are more like the skeleton argument in the Court of Appeal. Although, and this represents a distinction between, in practice, an appeal to the Court of Appeal and an appeal to the Supreme Court, in that the Supreme Court is much more likely to be interested in the jurisprudence of other countries, particularly other Commonwealth countries, the USA and some European countries, whereas the Court of Appeal is much less likely to be interested in such jurisprudence unless it really is on point and key to the potential outcome of the appeal in the Court of Appeal. And that in itself also reflects a difference between the approach of the two courts. The Supreme Court is much more interested in principle, and because it's the ultimate court of appeal, it tends to go back to first principles when deciding how to determine an appeal, much more so than the court of appeal, which is much more bound by authority, has a much higher caseload, and therefore has less time to explore the highways and byways of foreign jurisprudence. And so the focus of a skeleton argument in the Court of Appeal is more likely to be more tightly drawn than it is probably going to be in the Supreme Court. So that reflects another important distinction between a skeleton argument in the Court of Appeal and a printed, or as I think it's called in the rules of the Supreme Court, the written case. So you've told us that the Supreme Court is more concerned with a comparative perspective and the jurisprudence of other countries. Do you think, therefore, there's a greater scope for academic input in the Supreme Court? There is, and quite often one team or the other or both in the Supreme Court will bring an academic on board as a part of the legal team for precisely that reason. As I said earlier, the Supreme Court is primarily interested in the principles involved. And because 
it, it can overturn the decisions of lower courts. It is therefore less interested in the decisions of the lower courts than it is in its own previous decisions. And one of the interesting things one discovers from doing cases in the Supreme Court is that they tend to want you to cite previous decisions of the Supreme Court or the Appellate Committee of the House of Lords much more than they want you to cite first instance or court of appeal authority. And indeed, there may be very little reference during the appeal to the decision in that case of the court of appeal. The Supreme Court is going to be more interested in the decision of the first instance judge because that's where they'll find the facts. But they tend to say very little about the decision of the Court of Appeal. But going back to what you asked me, comparative law, yes, they are much more interested. Judicial assistants may well have been asked by them to do some comparative law research anyway, and they will expect the, the parties in their written cases to set out what, if any, relevant comparative law there is. There are some foreign courts and some foreign judges that they are particularly interested in. So that tends to be reflected in the nature of the hearing before the Court of Appeal on the one hand and the Supreme Court on the other. As I said earlier, an appeal to the Court of Appeal is much more tightly drawn. They've got a lot of work to get through. They'll have one eye on the clock in court to make sure that you you keep up to speed with your time estimate. Whereas in the Supreme Court, you can engage in more of a conversation with them about the underlying principles involved. In the old days, before the Supreme Court was created, appeals were to the appellate committee of the House of Lords. The hearings took place in the committee rooms, two committee rooms in the House of Lords, which were the same size as other committee rooms. And the judges sat very close to where counsel would address them. So you've never had to raise your voice in order to, to speak to them. And you really could engage in a conversation with them, which was a particularly valuable aspect of advocacy before the appellate committee. Some of that has, has been lost by the move to the Supreme Court, where the courtrooms are much more like the courtrooms we're familiar with from over the road, for example, in the Royal Courts of Justice. But there's still this interest in, as it were, debating the issues with counsel and engaging in an exchange of views with counsel significantly more than you would expect to find in an appeal before the Court of Appeal. So in the Court of Appeal, where it might be less responsive, how do you go about reading judges? Well, that, that's not altogether easy because some of them may say very little during the course of a hearing. That tends, however, generally not to be the case. What tends to happen in the Court of Appeal at a hearing is, firstly, the judges don't come in at 10.30 prompt. They're more likely to come in about 10 or 15 minutes later. The reason for that is they've probably been sitting around the table in the senior judge's room deciding the outcome of the appeal. Uh, and usually, once they've come in and you've, if, say, I'm the appellant and I've started my submissions, within about 10 to 15 minutes, I will know what they've provisionally decided from the questions that I'm asked. Uh, it's not difficult to, to work out whether they're with you or against you from the tone of the questions and indeed the nature of the questions. So th that's the first way in which you'll read how they're how they're thinking, and uh, if if it's if it, it if it's pretty clear that they're against you, your heart tends to sink. But you you've then got to pull yourself together and say, right, I'm sorry, we're going to do my best to pull them round. 
reading individual judges, it, I, I mean, again, the best way of reading them is is from any questions that they may ask. Sometimes you can read them from their body language. If a submission is going down extremely badly, some of them can't restrain themselves from making it pretty obvious what they think of it without needing to ask that question. Um, but as I say, there, there may be hearings in the Court of Appeal about, say, about a particularly specialist area of law where one of the judges has no previous experience in that area of law at all. So he or she may just keep quiet. And you probably find when the judgments are handed down that he or she has simply said at the end, I agree, and nothing more than that. To what extent is it important to do your homework on your judges? Well, it's it's quite important because it, it's helpful to know which of them, if any, has any specific experience in the field of law which concerns the appeal. I mean, some of them may have had no experience at the bar in that particular area of law. But they, of course, because we're now in the Court of Appeal, well, they're now in the Court of Appeal, they may have had experience of that field of law when sitting as a first instance judge. Although, of course, if they're chancery, if they're former chancery or commercial court judges, then they may have had very little experience in, say, a clinical negligence appeal. One other thing that is worth remembering is that one of the three is likely to have case-managed the appeal from a very early stage. And quite often it, it's possible to work out which one that is because he or she will be, or may be, more obviously familiar with the facts uh, and indeed may ask most of the questions during the course of the, the hearing. So uh, that may be the, the best person to address your submissions to, particularly if one or more of the other two aren't looking particularly interested because it may be not their specialist area. So you've sent in your skeleton argument or written case. How do you go about preparing in the days leading up to the hearing? Well, I always try not to conduct the hearing by reference to my skeleton argument. I think they've read the skeleton argument and, and they're not going to be assisted by you simply taking them through it. I've only seen it done once successfully by Jonathan Crow, who I think used to be, I can't remember if he still is, the Treasury devil on the Chancery side, but I saw him do it once in the Supreme Court very successfully. But I don't recommend it because they've read it and they don't want you to ask them to read it again, even if you take them through it paragraph by paragraph. So what I try and do is to represent the case in a slightly more punchy way in terms of my oral submissions. So I will prepare something like a speaking note or some sort of outline of how I plan to present the submissions. There is a member of the bar who shall remain nameless who used to um, type out a, a word for word opening note, which he would then read through. This would irritate the judges because, you know, they were trying to take a note of his submissions. But there he was with a printed copy already in front of them. And I remember doing a case against him, and, and one, of the, one of the judges in the Court of Appeals said, well, Mr. Sanso, it would be very helpful, you know, if you gave us a copy of your opening note so we didn't have to, we didn't have to make our own notes of it. No, he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that, which, as you can imagine, didn't go down very well. But no, I do make an opening note, but it's not type or anything. It's just sort of headings and a few other points to remind me in which direction I should be going. But sometimes you need to 
you know, tear it up and start again if, if you find that what you plan to say isn't going down very, very well. Now, you're a very experienced advocate and have appeared in the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court countless times. But do you still get nervous? Oh, yes, I do. And I think that if, if the time ever came when I didn't get nervous, that would probably be the time to hang up my wig. And how do you handle nerves? Well, the, the, the best way of dealing with nerves, as I think footballers will tell you, is to, is to start the match, is to get playing. So the best way of, of getting rid of them is to, is, is to get onto your feet and, if you're the appellant, start making your submissions. It's not quite so easy if you're having to sit there as the respondent and listen to your opponent. But once the hearing gets going, the nerves tend to go away. Do you have any practical tips for our listeners? Well, I do. The, the, the first practical tip is when you get to the Court of Appeal, physically, when you go in, I always write the names of the, usually three, sometimes two judges, somewhere on a piece of paper. I usually write them at the top of my notebook on page one, as it were, because it is quite easy to forget the names if you haven't got it, even for someone like me who will know most of them, except the, except the younger ones these days. So it's really useful to have their names written down somewhere, because if one of them asks you a question, then, then you can answer the question, but you may need to say, as my Lord or Justice X has just said, and I once addressed one of them using the wrong name, because I'd had a senior moment, and he very kindly put me at my ease by saying, you know, there's a pause when I, <laughs> when I addressed him by the wrong name. And, and then I corrected myself as quickly as I could and said, I'm so sorry. And he said, thank, thank you, Mr. Havers. I thought I was having a senior moment there. So I was put back at my ease. In the Supreme Court, you don't need to do that because when you sit down or when you arrive at your seat for the hearing, you're presented with a typewritten piece of paper which has all, all the justices' names on it. Other tips, um, in the Court of Appeal, normally there are lecterns available for you. I mean, I have to say, I, I do still quite like taking over those slatted cardboard boxes because they're, they're all the same level and I, they're flat as opposed to sort of at an angle towards you. But do not take your slatted cardboard boxes to the Supreme Court. They don't go down at all well. Indeed, you will be told before the, the hearing starts to, to throw them away or put them at the back of the court and use the lecterns that are provided. Next tip, all the hearings in the Supreme Court are live streamed. So you, you just need to be aware of that. I mean, not that it will affect how you approach your advocacy because you forget it very quickly. In the Court of Appeal, the hearing won't necessarily be live streamed, but it may be. So it's worth checking in advance so that you at least know whether you're, you're going to be on screen or not. Remember that if you are live streamed, then the clerk's room may have been watching your performance. And when you get back to the clerk's room at the end of the day, they may have some comments favourable or otherwise to make about how they thought you were getting on. Um, in the Court of Appeal, you will be robed, for sure. In the Supreme Court, you won't be robed, as long as all parties agree not to robe. And I've never known anyone to disagree about that. And, and the judges in the Supreme Court won't be robed either. They'll be wearing business suits or the female equivalent thereof. It really is important in both courts to stick to, as best you can, to the amount of time that you've been allotted. You'll be asked in relation to hearings before both courts, say you're the appellant, how long you, you estimate your opening submissions will take. 
and how long you think your reply will take. And if you're the respondent, you'll be asked the same question about your submissions as respondent, particularly in the Court of Appeal, but actually increasingly in the Supreme Court. The, the judges will be keeping one eye out on the clock. And you need to be an extremely grand advocate to get away with exceeding that by very long. I mean, if you're uh, Sir James Eady, for example, you can probably get away with it, as he did once with me in the Court of Appeal, and went on into mid-afternoon when he should have stopped by the short adjournment, which is irritating, because then, you know, you need to compress your own submissions in an unhelpful way. And if, if that is happening to me, in certainly in the Court of Appeal, I may well actually stand up and say something. I probably wouldn't in the Supreme Court, but I, I probably would in the in the Court of Appeal. But, and this is another tip I would give, um, as a general rule, don't stand up and interrupt your opponent. I mean, I think that for me is a rule that applies across the board to all advocacy, but particularly in the Court of Appeal. And there may well be a temptation to do so if you think your opponent has got an important fact wrong, or if you think that he's saying something completely beyond the pale. But my long experience is it's much better to bite your tongue and to wait until your turn comes. And quite often, the, the advantage of doing that is that if you just hang on another minute, one of the judges will intervene and say, hang on a minute, that's, that's not right, Mr. Sanso. And it's so much better if they do it than if you do it. So bide your time and, and wait until your turn comes. There's a wonderful story about a, a former member of these chambers, John Elliott, who became a High Court judge, when he was a very, very formidable advocate. And if he was on his feet making submissions, sometimes his opponent, instead of standing up and, and, and complaining about what John was saying, he'd start sort of harumphing noisily, noisy enough for the judges to hear and indeed to see sometimes. And John's approach to this, when the harumphing got too much, was just to sit down and look straight out ahead. Stare, stare straight ahead. And the judge or the judges would turn to him and say, yes, Mr. Allen. And John would say, I think my own friend has something to say. Put his head down. Exposing his opponent, because the judges would then swing round and see his opponent rumping away. I saw him do it, and it was very effective, but you need to be quite a powerful personality, confident personality to do it, which he was. Next tip, sorry, there are so many. Next tip is questions from the judges. If you can, answer the questions then and there. Try not to say, well, I'm, I'm going to come to that later in my submissions, because you need to take them with you as much as you can. And the reason for the question may be that there is a point that's troubling them slightly. So if you can answer it, by which I probably mean if you've got a good answer to it, then give it to them there and then. Don't say, I'll come back to it, because then you've, you've lost the chance to, to put their minds at rest or to provide a, a good answer to it. Sometimes they ask you a question which is truly from left field. If, if you are good enough, if you're sharp enough or confident enough to answer it, then do so. But if it, if it really is so left field then no one's going to complain if you say, can I think about that? And from your own point of view, much better to say, I'd like to think about that and, and, and give you an answer at a later stage, because otherwise you run the risk of giving me the wrong answer or a poor answer or an incoherent answer. 
Whereas if you give yourself time to think about it, you can give a much, much more useful answer from your point of view. I want to explore with you the difference between trial advocacy and appellate advocacy, with our focus being the latter. Does appearing before appellate courts require a different skill set? I think it does. At first instance, particularly in a witness action where there's live evidence, you're going to need, hopefully, the, the, the skills of managing a witness. It may be your witness, or it may be cross-examining the other side's witness. And even your closing speech, although you will need to be forensic and have the skill to advance your argument, you're going to be referring back to the live evidence in a way that won't be so obvious and so important in the appellate courts. In the appellate court, you need to have the skill to analyse the judgment against which you're appealing, identify what you say is wrong with it. In other words, identify where you say the judge went wrong in his analysis of the facts or his or her understanding of the law or indeed the conclusions that they arrived at based on the facts and the law. There'll be much less of that at first instance, where, as I say, so much will depend on the evidence, but much more of that in the appellate courts. So it doesn't follow that just because you're the finest cross-examiner in the land, you have the skills that will serve you well in, in the appellate courts. I mean, there are some, obviously, outstanding advocates who do both extremely well, but equally there are some who I think are probably more suited to appellate advocacy than they are to first instance advocacy. And of course, I mean, most advocates do very little, if any, appellate advocacy. I mean, the vast majority of us just do the first instance work because once the judge has made his or her decision, there isn't any appeal. And that's true, obviously, in, partic in particular of criminal work, where the, the decision is the jury's anyway, and finding grounds for appeal aren't always straightforward. What do you think specifically makes an effective appellate advocate? Clarity, first and foremost. If you listen to David Panic in the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court, the primary thing about his submissions are that they are extremely clear and easy to follow. And you, you might think that that should be a given in appellate advocacy, but it's not. So that's point number one. Point number two is concision. I referred to that already in the context of skeleton arguments, but it's no less applicable in your submissions to the appellate court at the hearing. Repetition of your submissions goes down extremely badly and usually indicates a lack of confidence in your case the fact that you feel the need to repeat something you already said. So clarity and concision and something intangible, the ability to engage with the judges and to interest them in your arguments. It helps if they know you and, as it were, can trust you or rely on you not to take bad points to stick to your, stick to your good points. And indeed, another tip, again, might seem obvious, but always start with your best point <laughs> and don't have too many points. I remember there was a, a lovely guy who, who I did a lot of immigration cases against in the old, in the old day, I say in the old days when I was on the Treasury panel. And he, he always took about nine or 10 points in an immigration case, all but one 
were usually really bad points. I'm not sure he ever knew which one it was, but there was usually one in there which was actually quite a good point. And so you had to be prepared. You couldn't just sort of sit back and, and say, right, this, this case is, is dead easy. I'm going to win this case. Because the, if there was a good point in there, the judge would spot it and you'd have to deal with it. So start with your best point. Don't have too many. I mean, it's pointless having sort of nine or ten mm -hmm. points because they'll, they'll have lost interest by the time you get to number six or number seven. So sort of three or four maximum. So those are what I think that are the attributes that make for a good appellate advocate. But as I say, to have a bit of a reputation already takes you a long, long way. I've mentioned David Pennock's name already, Lord Alexander, in, you know, many years ago. I mean, he just stood up and they, you knew that they would listen to what he had to say. But of course, you need, you need the time and the opportunity to build up that sort of reputation. At appellate level, cases often have intervening parties. And indeed, you represented the Air Centre as an intervener in Siannan Pool before the Supreme Court. What do you think is the role of an intervener? Well, let me begin by telling you what the role is not. And it is not to simply replicate the submissions of the... the usually you intervene on one side or the other. I mean, you're not on the side of the government, for example. So the, the thing not to do is to replicate their submissions. You, what you need to do is to bring a new dimension, if you can, to the argument... Perhaps that can be factual to the extent that the intervener can speak of his or her or its experience in the particular field in a way that will interest the Supreme Court, because it tends to be the Supreme Court rather more than the Court of Appeal where interveners will intervene. And the Supreme Court may well find that evidential, practical experience of real value to them in understanding the context for the appeal, because the parties to the appeal may not have nearly as much direct experience as the intervener will have in that particular field. It may be that they contribute a different legal angle to the arguments that the two sides want to put to the court. And there may be specific reasons why the appellant and the respondent don't want the legal argument to ex extend beyond any particular boundary for their own reasons, whereas the intervener may not be may not have that self-interest at heart and may, may be able to invite the court to consider somewhat wider legal submissions than the, than the parties would wish the intervener to do. It may be that there's jurisprudence from abroad that the parties haven't focused on very much, but the intervener may wish to focus on. And the, I mean, the Air Centre is, is a highly specialised body with a, a huge amount of experience in, in Strasbourg casework and case law, probably more than most parties can bring to an appellate hearing. So they're able to provide perhaps a, a more specialist understanding of the relevant jurisprudence of the Court of Human Rights. So putting all that together, the, the, the key is to bring something to the appeal that the parties aren't going to bring themselves. How often do you think intervener submissions make a difference to the outcome of a case? It's very difficult to say, to gauge. I mean, sometimes you can infer that they did make some difference because they're referred to specifically in the judgments and perhaps because some of the arguments advanced by the intervener have plainly been adopted by some of the judges on the appeal. 
in other cases, and the air cases, the, the CNN case that you referred to is a good example. <laughs> None of the judges referred to the interveners into our intervention at all in their judgments. I don't believe that the interveners are, that, that an intervention is ever decisive of the outcome in a case, but they can contribute to the outcome in some cases. And finally, can you talk us through what happens after the hearing? Well, on a practical level, you will get from both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court the draft judgments handed down for you to consider and to correct in grammatical terms only. A warning here, I've seen one or two <laughs> opponents try to rewrite <laughs> the judgments, which doesn't go down at all well. Obviously, if it's the Court of Appeal, the draft judgments will be embargoed until the approved judgments are handed down. So woe betide you or any of your team or indeed your client if you disclose the content or disclose the outcome of the appeal or any detail from the draft judgments until the time comes. And this, this does occasionally happen. And if you do, and there's, a, there's always a box on the top of page one, reminding you, you will, strictly speaking, be in contempt of court. But if, you're, if it's the Court of Appeal, then obviously, having digested the outcome and the reasoning, then, then your client will no doubt, if you've lost, want you to consider an appeal. And if you do appeal after the Supreme Court, you go. If it's the Supreme Court, well, then you've, that's the end of the road domestically. And your only avenue of appeal thereafter is to Strasbourg. Philip, it has been a pleasure. Many thanks for coming on the pod and giving our listeners such expert insight into appellate advocacy. Thank you. No, thank you very much. This episode of Law Pod UK was presented by Lucy McCann and produced by the barristers at One Crown Office Row.